If you could turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to the back, we are now on Lord's Day 21. 21. So I'm not going to go through the whole outline of the Heidelberg Catechism. Again, I've been trying to give you some refreshers, and, but I think we probably, most of us have it now. Um, we are in that section, in the, the middle section, the gray section, that exposits the Apostles' Creed. And so last week we looked at what do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? And now we get to the next couple of lines in the Apostles' Creed, and, and uh, these are really helpful, as it all is. It's all good summary on the, the historic Christian faith. Let's ask the Lord's blessing now for our time together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for all that you've given us in Christ, and we thank you for our callings that you give us in the world, opportunities to live our lives to your glory. And we pray that you give us further instruction now in this catechism time. We pray for the children and that their, their time with their teachers and their classmates would be profitable in instruction in the faith. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, watch over us and continue to help us mature as disciples. And help us now as we give our attention to what it means to be part of your church here on earth and what we confess. And we ask that this would all be done to your glory. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so when we say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We get to, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And then what's the next line? I believe a, man, okay, so we've got uh, people that don't know the Apostles' Creed. Let's try it one more time. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe, there we go. So what are we saying when we say, I believe a holy Catholic church? Um, and that's what we want to look at. And let's, so if you have the, the Heidelberg, <clears throat> it's on page 27. So Heidelberg Catechism is divided up into 52 Lord's Days, as you know. It goes through guilt, grace, gratitude. In that grace section, it exposits the Apostles' Creed. And so question 54 is what we want to give our attention to right now. So what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God through his word and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be a living member. So, okay, let's think about this together because this is huge. The church is important. Now, first of all, let's just knock this one out of the way. Um, a lot of times if you've come out of an evangelical church where you, you didn't say the creed uh, together, you know, either the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed, um, first of all, you should know that that's a, a deviation from historic Christianity to not say the creed. Uh, the creed was always, has always been part of Christian worship, East, West, Protestant, Roman, um, going back to the early church, the earliest liturgies we have, the Apostles and Nicene Creed uh, have always been part of it. 
It really hasn't been until the rise of the whole Baptist movement, and especially in the 20th century, and especially post-60s, and then with the, the rise of the whole megachurch movement and evangelicalism, that the creed is just disregarded. And um, the church that I grew up in as a kid, we didn't say the creed ever. And it was detrimental in many ways to my faith. When I first came across the Apostles' Creed, maybe you thought, well, what, what does this mean here? I believe a holy Catholic church. And so we have to understand that the word Catholic, or the Catholic church, does not mean Roman Catholic. There is a difference between Catholic and Roman Catholic. Um, a holy Catholic church predates, the, even that term predates what is now known as the Roman Catholic Church. So, for example, the, um, the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325, uh, that's an ecumenical council. That is of both East and West. And so, you know, there's Constantinople. It's in Con- or, uh, Constantine who moved the empire, the capital of the empire, to Constantinople. Constantine calls the uh, Nicene Council uh, mainly to deal with this problem of Arianism, this guy Arius who was denying the eternality of the Son of God. And there they produce a creed, and they say the same thing, uh, I believe, a holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic, you know, in, in, by 325 and even earlier, is understood to mean universal, the whole church. And when we talk about the Catholicity of the church, the Catholicity of the church means the, those things that are orthodox for Christianity, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, you know, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, the doctrine of the resurrection. You can't, you can't deny those things and still be a Christian. It's impossible. Um, so people like John Adams, who was one of our founding fathers, a brilliant, brilliant thinker and great statesman, was not a Christian. He was a Unitarian, and, Unit- and a Unitarian is not Christian. It's a denial of the Trinity. He's buried in a Unitarian cemetery and uh, thought that the doctrine of the Trinity was foolish. Um, you can't be a Christian and deny the doctrine of the Trinity because that's of the essence of the Christian faith, of what we call Catholicity. So all part of the whole church has to confess certain things. Uh, and that, that, for example, at the Council of Nicaea, that was made very clear on the eternality of the Son of God. You can't deny that the Son of God is eternal and still be a Christian. You, you're, you're now adhering to a different religion and a different faith. So we shouldn't ever be afraid of this term, Catholic. There's no other kind of church in the world you know, Christian church, the true church, and there's no other kind of true Christian but a Catholic Christian or a Catholic church. Um, That's different than Roman Catholic. And that's why I try to use, when I talk about the Roman Catholic Church, I try to distinctly say Roman Catholic, not just Catholic. Does does that make sense to everybody? That's really important to to grasp uh, because I think sometimes we overreact to words like Catholic or another one, Virgin Mary, we overreact to it. Um, she, was a, she was a virgin, and she was blessed by God. That's, that's Christian doctrine. Um, we, can't, uh, try to, we shouldn't overreact to those things. So, but what does this mean to be part of the, the Holy Catholic Church? Um, well, there's some important teaching here that is summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
And I want to go through some of that and think about it in terms of uh, uh, biblical theology in the, in the history of redemption. But before I do, are there any questions about this, about this term, Holy Catholic Church? Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, it's universal. But, it's, um, but when we say universal, we have to understand what that means. That's why I was talking about the Nicene Council. So at the Nicene Council, that's representatives of both East and West. So there is no other church but the Holy Catholic Church. And we are part of that. We are not Roman Catholic, uh, but we, we are part of the Holy Catholic Church. And uh, we shouldn't be afraid of that term. You know, we need to recover that term. There's been a lot of things that uh, Protestants historically had no problem with. But as time goes on, Protestants overreact toward. Catechism is another one. Um, I meet you know, Christians all the time, you know, evangelicals, like, catechism, isn't that Catholic? Uh, and then in my mind, I'm thinking, well, of course it's Catholic. It's you know, Christian. But I know what they mean. They mean, isn't that Roman Catholic? And, uh, and then I have to ex- explain, well, actually, didn't you know that it was Protestants who invented catechisms? And it was the Roman Catholic Church in the Counter-Reformation, you know, during the time of the Council of Trent in the 16th century, that began to write its own catechisms in response to Protestant catechisms because Protestants were training their... It's the fact that you know, many Christians today have grown up in churches where there is no catechism. And that's why they don't know anything. And they, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a time of biblical and theological illiteracy uh, that's very similar to the Middle Ages. You know, all these, these um, studies are done, and surveys are done, where they go on to Christian, so-called Christian college campuses or Christian bookseller conventions, and they'll ask them questions like, can you name the Ten Commandments? And they can't. Um, can you define what the doctrine of justification is? Pfft, no way. They can't do it. Um, it. People don't even know the Christian faith anymore. Because they've, in many ways, some generations have overreacted toward, to things that they considered to be too Catholic when, in fact, they were Protestant. Um, another one I'll mention is the collar that ministers wear. If you see a guy in a collar, what do you typically think? Priest, right? It was Scottish Presbyterians that invented the collar. And the collar is a symbol of that man is marked out for ministry to the church. He's, in a sense, married to the church. And it was the Roman Catholic Church. These were cassocks at the time. And then they copied the Presbyterians. You can, do all the, you can look at all the, the history yourself. And in an overreaction, uh, you know, Protestants stopped doing things for, because they didn't want to be identified with what's Roman, when in fact it was the Protestants that invented these things. We can use lots of examples, and this is another one, this word. Don't be afraid of the word Catholic. Don't be afraid of the word catechism. And don't be afraid of seeing a minister in a collar. A lot of Reformed Presbyterian ministers wear them, uh, as I wear a gown. Um, so there's, there's good reasons for these things. Uh, but let's think about the church real quick, this is, because this is huge and really important and encouraging. What does that mean, church? When we talk about church... What are we talking about? So, uh, church, the best way to understand it is it is both people and place. I was talking to someone the other day, and they were saying, 
well, the church isn't the building. The church is the people. And I said, well, that is true. However, the church meets around word and sacrament. So there is place, and you have to meet some place for word and sacrament. Apart from word and sacrament, there is no church. There's no church without word and sacrament. The only reason we are part of a church is because the gospel has created us to be a church. And we are sustained on the food of word and sacrament. So we're still the church outside of Sunday, of course. But if you, if you separate word and sacrament from the people, it no longer is a church. You've cut off the umbilical cord. You've cut off the life. It is both people and place. Uh, and so it's important for us to understand that the people can meet anywhere. We can meet in a building and try to design the building so that the architecture comports well uh, with holy worship, is conducive to biblical worship. But in fact, the people could meet you know, in a house, as they have in some places. Um, and there's, we want to use wisdom when we're thinking about a building and what it should look like. And we could go through all of that, the architecture and what it all means and But it's both of these things, people, the people of God, the church, the bride of Christ, the household of God, the pillar of truth, the branches on the vine, the flock of Jesus Christ, all those images that the New Testament gives us. But they meet together for worship. So you can't be a lone ranger Christian. There's no such thing as that. You have to be a member of Christ's church, and in some way held accountable for your doctrine in life. And so, uh, where does this begin, the church? When's the beginning of the church? What's that? Adam? Okay, let's think about it a little more. Nobody wants to say. Um, So, there... There's different stages, but the church really begins, it does begin with Adam, but when? It begins after the fall. So this is a timeline. Here's Adam. And the goal that Adam is given is glory, symbolized in the tree of life. And he has that as a goal. If he's obedient to God and faithful in his calling, he inherits glory for himself and for all those whom he represents. Glorified life, that is. Not taking from the glory of God, but God would bring him into glorified life. life physical life, but glorified. As we know, Adam doesn't reach that goal. He has a fall. It's an F on the test. And he's barred, it's a wall, from the tree of life. But right then, when God enacts the curses of the covenant that he puts Adam into, that covenant of works, where if he is obedient, he gets glory, glorified life. If he's disobedient, he gets death. Uh, as In Genesis 3, as God is doling out, dishing out the uh, covenant curses, on the serpent, on the land, on the woman, and on the man. Um, he also gives a promise. And so in Genesis 3.15, we, 
which is for the first gospel promise. So it's post-fall. Right there. What does he do there? In Genesis 3.15, uh, he, t- he says to the serpent that he is going to separate the seed of the serpent from the seed of the woman. So there's a separation of people. And these two people run throughout time. Seed of woman, seed of serpent. He uses the plural, seed or offspring, same word in Hebrew. But then he uses the singular and says that a seed of the woman, one particular seed, is going to crush the serpent's head. He will bruise, you will bruise his heel, and he will bruise your head. And that, of course, is Christ, who comes in the fullness of time, okay, who is the second Adam to bring us to glory. And that's what the whole Bible is about. That's what all human history is about. It's all about that, about these two Adams and about Christ bringing us to glory, which he does when he returns. This is Ariel coming down. But these two people now, from the time of the fall, when they're separated in Genesis 3.15, run throughout time. That's the beginning of the church. Because the word church, okay, the word church, in... uh, Every time you read that word church in the New Testament, it's the Greek word ekklesia, uh, and it means assembly or called out. Uh, It's translated in the Greek Old Testament, the the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but they had the Septuagint, which uh, in like the days of the apostles and Jesus, uh, people had access to the Septuagint which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures uh, because Greek was a, the common language of the world. And every time they would translate uh, the, the Hebrew word kahal, which means assembly, it would be translated ecclesia. And, and that's what you get in the New Testament. That's what we call ecclesiology or ecclesiastic, you know, things like that uh, having to do with church. But essentially what kahal and ecclesia mean is the ones who are called out and assembled before God. That means you're part of an assembly. That's what church means. That's why, again, it's people in place. We're interconnected. Uh, You can't be a Christian and not go to church Um, because that would be contrary to everything that God has made you. And uh, I realize I have one L, not two. Um, has made everything that He has made you in Christ. Uh, you are called out from the seed of the serpent. You're called out from the mass of damnation, uh, redeemed by Christ, and now participating in the worship of God with the people of Christ and receiving Christ in word and sacrament. And so the New Testament knows nothing. It doesn't have a category for the Lone Ranger Christian, for the Christian who says, well, I'm a believer in Jesus, but you know, I don't go to church, or I'm not a, I'm not a member of any church, I'm a free agent. Um, you know. Again, you might have, maybe you've been burned by the church before, maybe you've, you've uh, been disappointed by the church. You should be. 
because we live in a fallen world. And there's no perfect church this side of glory, this side of the consummation. Um, you, you know, but that should not prevent us from being obedient to the Lord and being a part of his church and, and, and participating in the life of the church. Because this is something that goes all the way back to the seat of the woman. Now, this was, the church was subsumed into the nation of Israel temporarily from the point of Mount Sinai. God makes a covenant with a nation, Sinai, until the time of Christ. However, before that, he makes a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 15, where he says, I'm going to give you a seed, offspring. He uses that word again. And then that's fulfilled on that first level temporarily in a nation of Israel. And so all the church is subsumed here. If you wanted to be part of God's people and you're a Gentile, you had to join Israel as people like Ruth did or Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. But then when Christ comes, okay, it's no longer limited to one nation. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses, he says in Acts 1, beginning when the Holy Spirit comes, beginning in Jerusalem, then all of Judea, then Samaria, the half-breeds, and then to the ends of the earth. And we see that working itself out in the book of Acts as, as the apostles go throughout the world on these missionary journeys, and it's reached all the nations. And so the church is made up of people from every tongue, nation, and tribe, okay? Although from the period of Sinai to the time of Christ's first coming, it was made up only of the, uh, those who had become part of the nation of Israel. Now it's all nations. And uh, it goes to Jew and Greek, Jew, to Jew and Gentile. And the way and the entrance into that church is through baptism, of course, and uh, profession of faith then gives us access to the Lord's Supper, and that church is manifest in local congregations, as Ephesians points out, First and Second Timothy, Titus, where you have pastor, elders, deacons, where people know each other, and where we're held accountable for our doctrine and life. And we make our way through this life as a community with God's people living life together until we are brought across the Jordan into the promised land. Any questions on that? Yeah, John. Yeah, especially you. I don't know if you're elect, man. I'm like... I got my doubts, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll set up an appointment. Uh, no, uh, so are they synonymous? Or is that what you're asking? Or? Right. Yeah, that's okay. So that's a good question. And because there's something about the church that's really important for us to recognize, and that's that you have what we could call, you know, if we looked at the church as a big circle... And this is the visible church. Meaning this, these are all the people that we see. Like, we're the visible church today. This is a manifestation of the visible church. Um, within that circle that's worldwide, universal, 
that what we would understand as being identified by three distinguishing marks, right? Preaches the gospel, ministers the sacraments, exercises church discipline. Within that circle, and this isn't to scale, I don't know what the ratio is, you have the invisible church, which is the elect. In other words, there could be some who are identified with the church that are tares, not wheat, as Jesus says. When he comes on the last day, he will separate that. You know, people who, who are not true believers at all. They've made a false profession. But they're just identified with the church. However, what we have to make sure we understand is that you can't be part of this circle, the elect, and opt out of this circle, the visible church. It doesn't work that way. And that seems to be the bugaboo for American Christians, especially the baby boomer generation. That's been a real problem you know, for the post-World War II generation. Is, um, well, I just want you know, freedom from the church, from anything that is visible or institutionalized. That is not New Testament. That might be Harley-Davidson, but that's not New Testament. So... Right. Right. That's right. We don't know the end of the story. So, yeah. Right. Right. Well, and what you're describing, really, a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, so much of the American church, American evangelical church, has just lost its doctrine of the church. Again, if you, if you throw out sacraments, if, that, if you don't have a high view of baptism and the Lord's Supper, there's no membership, um, then church just becomes kind of like a Walmart. You know, maybe you frequent there a lot, and you know some people, maybe you get a little involved, but um, you kind of blow in, blow out. You get a divorce, you know, hey, just bail that place, go to the next place. Nobody knows, nobody's the wiser. And, uh, and then you get a lot of evangelism where people are, they hear a gospel message, usually watered down. You know, maybe it's at a stadium during a harvest crusade or Billy Graham or whatever. And maybe they feel convicted of their sin. But then there's no discipleship that follows after that. And Jesus didn't say to the apostles, go into all the world and make converts. That's not a verse. What did he say? Go into all the world and make... And how long does it take to make a disciple? Is it a 12-week program? It's a lifetime. You're still in the discipleship program. I'm still in the discipleship program. And what does the discipleship program look like? Acts 2.42, right? This, Acts 2.42, the text we heard last week. And they continued steadfastly in apostolic doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Yeah, the, the, the ordinary diet of the local church where we continue to, hear, to sit under the preaching, the ministry of the word, which is given as a gift from Christ upon his ascension, Ephesians 4, and we participate in the communion of saints, the fellowship, 
That's all the epistles. Why is it that Paul, when he writes to these epistles, writes these epistles, he's writing to churches, specific local churches, where there are deacons and elders, and then he usually mentions names in the back. Oh, by the way, greet you know, so-and-so, greet so-and-so, and don't forget to greet, and so-and-so here greets you. They know each other the way we know each other. There has to be that kind of life. And there, it's not, but what we prefer is anonymity and autonomy. And again, that's the American spirit. But that has to be crushed you know, when we become a Christian, is that desire for anonymity and autonomy. We're not autonomous. It's a monarchy, and Christ is king, and he's a good king. And so you know, we need to make sure that when we reach out in evangelism, that um, people understand that, yeah, you believe on the gospel to be saved, but God saves us to something. He doesn't just save us and leave us out there. He make, he, we're baptized and we're brought into this whole community of faith. Now, again, we don't know where this line is, and we, we are to treat every single person as if they are elect, and every person that's outside of the church, we need to treat them as if they are potentially elect, because they may be brought in. But what we cannot do is say that, well, I'm part of this group, but I don't want to be part of this group. It does not work that way. That's saying, I love Christ, but I hate his body. It doesn't work that way. And we have a job to do, not just in reaching the nations, but in loving one another. Let's go to the next question. Look what, look what it says. What do you understand by the communion of saints? Question 55. First, that believers, one and all, as members of this community, share in Christ and in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it his duty to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. So we're one body in Christ, we're members one of another, and we're gifted by Christ to serve one another. And we're to do that with one another. You know, Lenore, you know, she's about to go home to be with the Lord, and she's a member of a church, a member of Christ's church. And there are people who know her. She's not an anonymous Christian, you know, who just kind of tunes in here and there on the internet or hops from church to church. She's been a member and sat right there for, what, seven, eight years and participated in the life of the church. And we know her week after week, hearing the word, receiving the sacraments, uh, uh, being a blessing to us, praying for us, writing poems for us, you know, and, and, and she's been through the ups and downs of all of she's, she's seen my kids, you know, grow up a little bit. Uh, she's seen many kids in the church grow up. Uh, she's been part of that communion of saints that, that we, we participate in, that life together as one people of God. And now that uh, she's, you know, toward the end here, we're going to grieve together, you know, as, as members of a congregation. And we, it's a blessing to be part of this, though, to, to see children born into the community of faith, baptized into Christ's church, you know, grow up. We see marriages take place within the church, and we've seen deaths take place. And uh, it's a beautiful thing to, to be part of that community. Uh, but to remove ourselves out of that is sinful. To, to, to just say, I'm going to opt out of that, is not Christianity. And this is something that is falling on hard times in the American church because we've, 
we've adopted this idea of the megachurch, which is basically a mall, you know, or a theater, or a department store. But it's, we, we, we don't approach church like consumers uh, to a store that's selling a product. Rather, the church is a mother that cares for its children. And as uh, the, you know, the ancients said, you can't have God for your father if you don't have the church for your mother. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when he separated the two seeds. And then we see how they're accounted for. Um, it's funny, sometimes people say, where do you see church membership in the Bible? And I say, well, there's a whole book about it. Well, what book? It's called Numbers. What is Numbers? It's a membership role. You know, have you ever read it? It's a membership role. What, did that all just go away? You know, once uh, Christ came? No, he's still, that's what you have in all the New Testament epistles. Um, and even, in, even in, uh, when Paul's writing to Timothy, saying, oh, and by the way, here's the ones that you should have on the benevolence role, the widows who are really widows, and those who are young can still get remarried. Don't put them on the rolls yet. I mean, how, if there was no membership or no visible church, why would the apostle even bother saying those things to a pastor of Ephesus? And so these are things that we need to recover and understand. And, um, and, and really enjoy and, seek and see our calling as Christians to, uh, to participate in life together, not just with our friends and family, but with our brothers and sisters that God has picked for us. You know, when we come to church, not only are we receiving from God word and sacrament, worshiping God as he wants us to do, he likes us to be assembled, but we also have opportunity to bless one another, to serve one another, even just appearing in, in uh, a worship assembly is a blessing to the rest of the body. And then we have opportunity to pray with one another, pray for each other, to listen to one another's difficulty, to shoulder each other's burdens, to, to love each other sincerely, uh, to contribute to the needs of the saints, to show hospitality, to do all that Romans 12 stuff. It's lived out in the context of the local church, which is very ordinary. It doesn't look spectacular doesn't always provide a radical experience. But the Christian life isn't about radical. It's about ordinary, and, uh, and that's okay. Uh, our Lord, when he came into this world, he looked pretty ordinary. And so, yeah, last question, then we have to release the hounds. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the Bible has got election all over the place. I mean, he chose Abram out of Ur. He didn't choose Abram's neighbor. He chose Israel, not Syria. Um, and we're addressed as the elect. But again, it's always in the context of the church. It can't be separated. So I know people who believe in the doctrine of election but are just roaming around out there with no church. And uh, that, that concerns me more than the Arminian, who at least is committed to a local church. <laughs> because that guy's trying to be a church to himself. He's his own pope. 
And we got a lot of those in America. America is just a, we are, we worship individualism. And uh, there's not individualism in the church. Your individual members who are individually gifted, we all have particular gifts, but we are living stones built up into one beautiful edifice, one beautiful temple. You can't say, well, I'm a rolling stone that gathers no moss. I'm over here, you know. And again, I don't want to pick on one particular generation, but man, post Beatles, it's bad. It's bad. That stuff just went skyrocketed. I mean, Calvary Chapel, which I grew up in, is basically the hippie movement baptized. And it was just freedom, do your own thing, whatever, you know, come just as you are. And there's, it's just, there's so many things. I remember reading like 1 Corinthians 5, as in uh, Calvary Chapel, where it says, you know, the person who does not repent of their sexual morality, put them outside the church. And we always had a high view of the Bible. And I remember going to a pastor and saying, how come we don't do this one? And they didn't have an answer for it. Like, well, I don't know, we just got to show grace. I'm looking at it, and I'm like, well, yeah, I think Paul believes in grace. I mean, he wrote Romans, right? But he also said we got to do this. And it's because it's uncomfortable. You know, it's uncomfortable. And nobody wants to do it. And, um, but, again, it's a monarchy. It's a kingdom. And so we got to go. You have two choices. Your rules or Christ's rules. There's no other. Go with Christ's rules. Go with Christ's rules. And we'll end on that. Father, we thank you for your rules and your word and the church. We thank you for the gospel that you have given us. And what a blessing it is to not be stranded sheep apart from the flock. Thank you for gathering us and protecting us. And we pray for your church universal, the church Catholic all over the world. Bless her, defend her, keep her, preserve her as she's militant in this world. And we look forward to the time, O Lord, when your whole church will be triumphant and glorified. Bless us until that day. Sustain us and feed us with your word and sacrament and help us to use our gifts for the benefit of one another quietly, uh, without fanfare or idolatry, but just in love and sincerity toward one another and out of obedience and love for you. For this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'll let them know, the kids. They probably all need to run home and go to the bathroom. So. Universal. I mean, yeah, it means universal. And so, and see, that's the claim that Rome wants to say is that they want to say, well, we are the universe. We are the church that Christ founded. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Roman universal. Right. That's why a lot of Catholics, they don't like it when you say Roman Catholic. <laughs>